Well, all right, well, come on back. Yes, come on back, and you can open up to the 50th chapter of the book of Jeremiah. Gabe just told me we started this, how about this, July 14th, 2021. Woo! We've been going through this for a long time. So now we're on uh, Jeremiah chapter 50. We actually did most of that last week, but I'm just going to refresh our memory. Remember that these last several chapters of the book of Jeremiah, starting with chapter 46, is a recall or a call regarding the judgment of the nations who bothered Israel. In fact, at the end of chapter 44, you sort of put a cap on all the prophecy that Jeremiah did, and then 46 through 49 is a roll call of the nations and the judgment that's going to come against the enemies of God and why that judgment is going to come. And then God saves the big empire for last, and that's Babylon. And if you don't get this, and you do if you've been traveling with us for a very long time, or for any length of time, if you don't get this, then you won't get this book, and that's this, is that Babylon was used by God as an instrument of judgment against the, nor- or, excuse me, against the southern kingdom of Israel, which was called Judah, because of a number of different reasons. One, they wouldn't rest as God prescribed it. Remember, six years of planting, seven years of rest, six years of planting, seven years of rest, and you counted on the Lord to supply you for that year that you didn't plant. And they never did it. For 490 years, they never did it. God said, you owe me 70 years. And so for 70 years, Israel was exiled to Babylon. Now, that's not the only reason. They were full of idolatry and pagan worship and a lot of other things. And so the Lord used Babylon, big bad Babylon, as an instrument of judgment against his people. And what did he do? Well, in three waves, starting in 605 BC, God had Babylon come down into southern, the southern kingdom of Judah and take out captives, like, for instance, Daniel and his friends. Ezekiel was up there. And then Jeremiah was back in the southern kingdom prophesying there. Daniel in the royal courts in Babylon, Ezekiel in the wilderness up there, but uh, uh, Jeremiah was down in um, Judah prophesying. He loved the people. God put that on his heart, and for 40 years, He just poured his heart out, telling them to repent, to repent, and turn from their ways. And they didn't do it. And so those three waves, 605 B.C., some of them were taken. 597 B.C., others were taken. And then 586 B.C., I know, people make fun of me. Right here's one of them over at their home. They make fun of me because I harp on this so much. But if you don't know this, this date, you're really going to struggle with the Old Testament. Much of what the Old Testament is talking about is this very thing that we're going to talk to the, uh, tonight about. In fact, there's only one incident in which in, the Lord writes four chapters about one thing, and that's the siege of Jerusalem. He writes four chapters in the Bible Kings, Chronicles, Jeremiah twice about the fall and the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So you must know, just from that alone, it's very important, it's pivotal to know and to have this understanding in your Bible knowledge. Okay, enough of that. Last week, in chapter 50, I sort of took you through it. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but... This is judgment on Babylon, and God declares his judgment and will defeat his enemies. We we know from this that God will defeat his enemies, and that God describes the judgment that's coming. Now, do you know this? 
You can figure out what the judgment is, or you can read about the judgment that came on Babylon. Those who were uh, tormenting southern Judah, or the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, you can figure out and read about what happened to Babylon by simply going to read the book of Daniel, chapters 4, chapter 5, right in there. When Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians came and laid siege against the city there in Babylon, and remember Babylon was one of those seven wonders of the world with those high cities, had, that, had water around it sort of like a moat, and what did uh, extra-biblical history tell us they did to defeat them in one night is that they diverted the water around the city so that the water would go this way, down, recede, and the army went up underneath and took care of that. And you can read about some of that in Daniel, okay? And so I took you through 50 and then ran out of time. I thought I was going to get through 51, but I didn't. But Jeremiah and 50, Jeremiah 50 and 51 are really just one long prophecy. And 51 repeats many or most of the themes of chapter 20. And here, we're just going to go through it very quickly. You can read this and check it off your two-year Bible as you do. That's a joke, but not for me. But anyway, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm going to raise up against Babylon, against those who dwell in Lab Kamai. He's going to raise up a destroying wind, and I'll send winnowers to Babylon who shall winnow her and empty her land, for in the day of doom they shall be against her all around. Against her let the archer bend his bow and lift himself up against her in his armor. This is sort of a description of the battle or of what was happening because we know that the Medes and the Persians were sort of good at archery. I'm going to utterly destroy all her army. Thus the slain shall fall in the land of the Chaldeans, and those thrust through in her streets. And I want you to circle this next thing. Because I believe, and we believe here, if you take this with all the other scriptures, this is not just a near fulfillment, but a far fulfillment as well. Israel is not forsaken, nor Judah, by his God, the Lord of hosts, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. Now, I want you to know something that is going to be repeated over and over and over. It's that God can't just clear the guilty. Where am I getting that language from? Exodus 34, verse 7. God, when, in Exodus 34, God sort of gives us a listing of lots of his attributes. And one of the things, uh, one of the attributes in there is that God's going to contend with sin or not clear the guilty. In other words, God can't just say, oh, you're a sinner? Ah, it's okay. No, God must have a penalty paid for that sin. There must be justice done for us falling below the standard of God or the glory of God. And so, you see that over and over throughout this whole book, but right there that, that I was reading, and also when we get into chapter 52, is that the Lord cannot just pardon sin without any penalty being paid. He must contend with the guilty. By, uh, though their land was filled with sin against the Holy One of Israel. And I think that's the point there of why that sentence is structured like that. Flee from the midst of of Babylon, and everyone save his life. Don't be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. Now he's sort of talking to the, watch this, he's sort of talking to the remnant or the exiles who are in Babylon. Hey, there's coming now a time that Babylon's going to get destroyed and uh, be beaten down, and we want you to come back. And here it says, don't be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand. Now, we know this, right? A cup in the Old Testament is a picture of God's wrath. And they were a golden cup because they were very rich, wealthy, and ostentatious. 
in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. Now, that's fascinating. Uh, you're going to see lots of different uh, um, references to being drunk. If you look over in verse 39, in their excitement, I will prepare their feasts. I will make them drunk. And then over in 57, and I will make drunk her princes and wise men. And if you read Daniel 5, chapter, verses 1 through 4, you're going to see they were partying and they were drunk. And that's what uh, precipitated or was there, was present when they were defeated. Well, anyway, if you continue on here in verse 8, Babylon has suddenly fallen and been destroyed. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she's not healed. Forsake her and let us go, everyone to his own country. For her judgment reaches to heaven and is lifted up to the skies. The Lord has revealed our righteousness. Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord our God. The remnant will return and will be praising in Zion. Well, look at verse 11. Make the arrows bright. Gather the shields. The Lord has... Is this amazing? The Lord has raised up the the spirit of the kings of the Medes. I wrote here, just simply, wow. (laughs) The Lord prophesied who it was, what country it would be, that would defeat Babylon. Now, you, you have to realize at the time that this is being written, there's no way Babylon's going to be defeated. <laughs> They're the greatest power. Everyone knows it. They rule and reign, and they're rich, and they're powerful, and there's never been a kingdom like them. And here it says the Lord has raised up the specific people, these Medes, and they would be joined with, by the Persians and some others. There would be a whole sort of confederation, but them primarily. For his plan is against Babylon to destroy it. Why? Because it's the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. Set up the standard on the walls of Babylon. Make the guard strong. Set up the watchmen. Prepare the ambushes, for the Lord is both devised and done what he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come. The measure of your covetousness, the Lord of hosts has sworn by himself, surely I'll fill you with men as with locusts, and they shall lift up a shout against you. There's going to be a well-coordinated attack, and it's going to be uh, swift and powerful. Well, he's, look at this little rundown of God's attributes. Isn't this beautiful? This is such a great Bible study right here in this little uh, few verses, these few verses. Here, he has made the earth by his power, Psalm 62. What? Power. I love this one. I taught this to my kids when I was, when, not when I was young, but I guess maybe when I was young too, when they were younger. Power belongs to God. I love that one. Well, maybe it's just me. But anyway, power belongs to God. And then he has established the world. How? By his wisdom and stretched out the heaven by his understanding. Can you imagine trying to make the world, the ecosystems and the clouds and the weather patterns and the insects and the birds migrating? I mean, just, just one thing, the birds migrating. Are you kidding me? How do they know how to do this, people? Well, it's God, right? And he does all this, and he stretches out the heavens by his understanding. And when he utters his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain. Isn't it great when there's a thunderstorm? Wow, it's so great. And he brings the wind out of his treasuries. Whoa. Well, everyone's dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metal smith is put to shame by the carved image. And he's going to go on here and uh, compare what it's like for the people of God, for those who don't serve uh, God. But he is, watch this, in verse 19, the portion of Jacob. Now, you could do a Bible study on this. The people that he chose, the chosen people. I I, uh, jumped down to verse 19. He's the portion of Jacob. Isn't that a beautiful thing? For the people of God, the Lord is to be our portion. The priests didn't get any land when they came into the promised land. Why? Because the Lord was to be their portion. You're a priest. 
We're part of the royal priesthood, right, it says, of course, in that sense. And so what is to be our portion? It's the Lord, not the gifts. The gifts are great. We love the gifts. Who here likes gifts? I do, man. But it's the giver that we're to love. In his presence is fullness of joy. When we get to the place where he is our portion, see, then the other things of life, although serious and are to be dealt with responsibly, but they sort of just sort of fall away because he is our portion. See, the portion of Jacob is not like them, for he's the maker of all things, verse 19, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. In other words, for the people of Israel, the Jews... The Lord was their portion, but to the Lord, his people was the inheritance, special, valuable. Oh, man, what a relationship. And that's what the Lord has for us. So you see this now in verse 20. You sort of see God showing his attributes in judgment. You're my battle axe and weapons of war, for with you I'll break the nation in pieces. With you, I will destroy kingdoms. I will break in pieces the horse and its rider, the chariot and its rider, break in pieces man and woman. I'll break in pieces old and young. With you, I'll break in pieces the young man and the maiden. I'll break in pieces the shepherd and his flock, uh, the farmer and his yoke. And I'll break in pieces governors and rulers. And I will repay Babylon. How about that? And all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done In Zion, in your sight, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth. I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. They shall not take from you a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation, but you're going to be desolate forever, says the Lord. Now that's interesting too, because see, you need to know, don't you? That not only is there a real Babylon, and that real Babylon was defeated at this time, what we're reading about. But remember now, Babylon sort of came back a little bit. You're like, what? Wait a minute. Didn't it just say they'll be totally destroyed? Wait wait a minute. What about Saddam Hussein and all that stuff? And where was he located and all that stuff? And sort of, it's, it was relocated, but you know this, Right? Go to Revelation chapter 17. So not only do we have a real Babylon, but there's also a spiritual Babylon. And so there's this thing in the Bible, there's this this theme all throughout the Bible that there's this false religion starting with Nimrod at the Tower of Babel. Sounds very close to Babylon. (laughs) Some people say, I babble on. couple people in the back there in the sound booth said that today. But anyway, no, not to name names. But, uh, <clears throat> but you know that there's coming a time when the false religious system <laughs> that's very much operating today is called the great harlot or the Babylon the great, the mother of harlots. So you have this picture of the city of peace and the city of God versus the city of evil and false religion. You have that picture. And then they're real cities themselves. But in the end times, you see, this false religious system that the Antichrist is going to sort of put his hand in like a to play, you know, to direct and guide, although it's been there. About midway through the seven-year period of tribulation, the false religious system, this, the, the confederation that's talked about in there, and if you need the tape of this, go back, is going to sort of wipe its hand of the false religious system and... The reason that's going to happen is because the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple and say, heck with that system, worship me. And that's sort of talked about, not sort of, that is talked about 
in chapter 17. Look down in verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood. Isn't that interesting? Drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The one who was intoxicated with the blood of the saints. Isn't that unusual and weird? And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast that carries her, which is the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the women sit. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eight and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Ten horns which you saw are ten kings who you have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. They are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them for he is the Lord of lords, king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. This ten-nation confederation of which the Antichrist will sort of be leading, they're going to make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire, for God has put into their hearts to fulfill his purpose to be of one mind and give their kingdom to the beast. Until the words of God are fulfilled, and the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Fascinating, right? So there's this thing that's gone on throughout the entire Bible. And back here, back in Jeremiah, as we read about what's happening to this city at the time of 586, etc., B.C., or right in that time frame, you're also seeing that There's coming a time when that one, the great harlot Babylon, is going to be hated by the Antichrist right there in the middle of the the tribulation period. Well, I want to point that out so that you'll see this uh, uh, as we move through here, but God is just, and God is, uh, you know... uh, pouring out his judgment on Babylon, but I want what, I, what got me down this rabbit trail is I want you to see the ultimate pouring out of God's wrath on Babylon, and that's found back in the book of Revelation. Revelation 17, that's talking about Babylon, the false religious system. Revelation 18, Babylon's false commercial system, and we went through that at length about a year ago in, in our studies. Well, look back, if you go back to um, uh, Jeremiah, how about in verse 21, uh, or excuse me, 27, God then, uh, through chapter 58, just basically announces victory over Babylon. And again, in verse 28, he announces that it's the king of the Medes who's coming, right? It's the king of the Medes. That's interesting. God just calls it, uh, you know, through the Holy Spirit, through Jeremiah and Baruch, He tells them who's going to actually overturn the Babylonians. And they describe the processes of war up here in 31, 32, 33. That's really fascinating to me because they talk about these different runners. You see, a runner in war was one who would be at the front and he would run back to the king and tell him what was happening. Then the king would have some messages for the generals and they'd run it back to the front. And there you go. There's runners and messengers to show the king of the Babylon, his city is taken on all sides. And you keep going. And there's another reference in uh, 33 to a threshing floor. Everybody know what a threshing floor is? Threshing floor is where they took grain and they had something stamp on the grain. You know, it might be an ox, might be whatever. And they would separate the, the, the good stuff, the wheat from the chaff and you know, they'd have the wind or they'd make wind and they'd throw it up in the air and, you know, the wind would come and they would separate the wheat from the chaff. And that's always sort of a, a theme throughout here. You, there's a number of different references to a threshing floor. 
Well, you keep going, 34, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He's crushed me. Um, Babylon did devour Judah. He's made me an empty vessel. He's swallowed me up like a monster, filled his stomach, etc., spit us out. The inhabitant of Zion, look down there, will say, and my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea, Jerusalem will say. Therefore, thus says the Lord, here comes the case of Israel and Judah, I will plead your case and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea and make her springs dry. And you could just keep reading about this. There in verses 38 through 40, we see it was a total surprise. And that's Daniel 5, man. It's a total surprise. The handwriting on the wall story, remember all of that? So, uh, and he says here in 40, I'll bring them down like lambs to the slaughter, like rams with male goats. And you keep going, and he talks about the punishment that he's going to uh, uh, exact on Babylon. And it says down there that the wall in verse 45 or 44, the wall of Babylon shall fall. Now, see, to us, you're just like, okay, whatever, no big deal. But these walls were hundreds and hundreds of feet high. You can see simulations out on the internet. It's almost too hard to believe that something back then without cranes and all that sort of thing could build these sorts of things. But, but he did. And uh, remember, Nebuchadnezzar, his wife, loved the mountains. He actually tried to make a mountain in the city. So this place was massive and huge. And so to see that the, uh, there was a prophecy that the walls of Babylon were going to fall was really an incredible thing. And last week I told you the, re- the way in which the walls fell, it fell over time because they were so big. They didn't fall on that day that the Medes came in and uh, took them over in one night. But what happened was eventually the capital was moved there and then people started to come against the city and eventually years later the fall walls did come down. We talked about that. Well, verse 45, my people are going to go out of the midst of her. And then it says this uh, up in verse 48, then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon, for the plunderers shall come to her from the north. Just astounding prophecies. Verses 51 through 55 it's, it's the Jewish people speaking. They're ashamed because people have heard of their reproach. And you can read that, the sound of great Babylon crying. It's from the um, Jewish perspective. And then I referred to it earlier, I will make drunk her princes and wise men. And that's Daniel 5 story, her governors, etc. And they shall keep sleep a perpetual sleep and not awake, says the king, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the broad walls of Babylon shall be utterly broken and her high gates shall be burned with fire. The people will labor in vain and the nations because of the fire and they shall be weary. Now, this is fascinating here. You're coming to the end. This really is the end of Jeremiah, really. And I'll explain that in a minute. But here it is. The word which Jeremiah the prophet commanded, Sarai. I don't know if you remember this. You probably don't. But Sarai is the brother of um, Jeremiah's secretary, Baruch. This is a, he, they come from a godly, responsible, civic-minded family, and he's the brother. And so for this particular prophecy, Sarai is picked, and you're going to know why. Because Sarai is actually going to deliver this prophecy. Can you, I was thinking about this today. I might have been, if I was Sarai, I'd said, Lord, are you, Really? You really want me to go do this? I mean, really? Here's what he had to do. So, you know, Baruch and Jeremiah, they stayed back in uh, Israel and eventually went to Egypt, right? Uh, uh, That's a whole different story. But here's Sarai, the son of Neriah, the son of Mesalah, or Mesiah, however you say it, when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. And Sarai was the quartermaster, was the quartermaster. Uh, And Jeremiah wrote in a book all the evil that would come upon Babylon. That makes me laugh because I think poor Sarai. Uh, 
here's your message, buddy. Uh, you're going to go up into the middle of Babylon. You're going to get in the public square. Maybe you want to call the king or something and let him know you're doing this. Call CNN, call Fox, call MSNBC, call Reuters, call BBC. Call them all. Get them all to come and tell them that I say to them, evil is going to come upon their whole kingdom. Okay? Sound good? Fine. That's what he's telling them. That's what's going to happen. That these writings are against Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Syriai, when you arrive in Babylon and see it and read all these words... Amazing. Then you shall say, O Lord, you have spoken against this place to cut it off, so that none shall remain in it, neither man nor beast, but it shall be desolate forever. Now it shall be, when you have finished reading this book, that you shall tie a stone to it and throw it out into the Euphrates River. This prophecy went into the Euphrates. Then you shall say, thus Babylon shall sink and not rise from the catastrophe that I'll bring upon her, and they shall be weary. These are the words of Jeremiah. Uh, this is around the year. Now, this you see, you've got to sort of piece all this stuff together. See, this isn't really at the end. This is uh, 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 when Zedekiah was king. If you guys have my chicken scratch somewhere, the last king before the uh, Jerusalem was overturned was Zedekiah. Well, this ain't Zedekiah, <laughs> right? And so the year of the plot to rebel against Babylon was around 594 B.C., you see, uh, and, oh, this is Zedekiah, sorry. The next one's not Zedekiah, next chapter, sorry about that. But anyway, this is the plot that Zedekiah, this is the point I was trying to make. This wasn't at the end of Zedekiah's reign. This was before the, uh, the end of Zedekiah's reign, when uh, back in Jeremiah we saw a chapter on this, when um, there was a little bit of weakening of Babylon. And so they thought, oh my gosh, there's, a, there's an inroad, and let's rebel against uh, Babylon. And see, the point about this is Zedekiah was put on the throne by Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar thought he had him in his pocket. And then there was this uprising and this revolt. And so it must have been, yeah, sorry, sorry, I got that. I told you wrong there earlier. But what it must have been was that Nebuchadnezzar said, Zedekiah, I want you to come up here. You imagine that call? You plotted against me and you're coming up to see me. And, oh, by the way, Sariah, or however you say his name, you go along and tell how evil they are, and I'm going to come against you. That's what's happening here, you see. So Jeremiah says to Sariah, when you arrive in Babylon, see, you read all these words, and then what I want you to do after you've got everybody's attention, can you imagine that? After you've got everybody's attention, you're sitting in the public square, you've probably called the exiles, you've called some of the officials around from Babylon. When you got their attention, I want you to go over to the Euphrates and dump it in and say, you're sinking. That's what he had to do. What an easy job. <laughs> It just says to me, and I think it probably says to you, just how much we need the Lord. I mean, sometimes the Lord, doesn't he? The Lord just calls us to do some of these difficult things. Like he says stuff like this. I, I want you to forgive that person. And you say, and I say, um, I don't know. I don't think I can do it. <laughs> and he says, no, that, that's what I want you to do. And I'll be with you as you go do it. If you'll just say yes, or excuse me, if you'll just say amen to what I'm commanding you to do, if you'll just agree to it, if you'll just count on me and trust me, you'll be able to do it. And at the moment, like, like, like for instance, you ever thought, think about that guy on that mat that's just been there all those decades? And, you know, he wants to be made well and, 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 and get up and walk. And the Lord says to him, oh, okay, hey, do this. Okay, your sins are forgiven. Here, here, get up and walk. And imagine that, what you would do. If, and, and listen, when you just agree to it, just agree, okay, I'll do it in your strength. Bang. That's when the magic happens. It's not magic, it's the Holy Spirit. And this one could get up and walk. Here, Sarah, he must have been saying, I, I don't know, maybe not. 
Maybe these people are just supernaturally superhero saints. But he must have had an inkling of, man, oh man, I don't know about this one. I know we, I grew up in a godly family. I want to serve you, Lord. But really, i got to go out in the public square, speak to the exiles, and tell the Babylonians right in front of their face, and then go throw it in the river. i got to do that. Lord, here's what I need. I just need you, because I don't feel like doing it. But I'll agree to it. Yes, Lord, and I'm going to trust you. And as soon as we do that, he empowers us to do the very thing he's asking us to do. Isn't that fascinating? And here he does it too. Well, I told them 10 minutes for 51. It didn't exactly go over as planned. But the fall of Jerusalem then is reviewed. And most people believe because this is a historical account. If you want the emotional account of the fall of Israel, well, you're going to come back next week because we're going to tackle lamentations. Five poems about grief and suffering. Job is personal grief and suffering. Lamentations, suffering because of national sins. I always never know the word, but what's the word when it's A and then it goes and then B? Is that acronym? Acrostic. I see, I never know the word. Acrostic. Made up of four acrostic chapters. Very fascinating, Lamentations is. We'll study that next week. But here, it's an historical account. There's not a lot of emotion about some of this stuff. And so most people believe Baruch, who assembled Jeremiah's papers, sort of added this onto the end and just stuck it there. And the Lord accounted it as a good thing because it was, again, a recounting of the fall of Jerusalem, showing us... That God is a God of justice. God is a judge. And many of us in American church shy away from that. But really, life makes no sense, no sense at all, if you think about it, if God is not a judge. Because what are we here for? And why are we here? And yet God is a judge, and there's justice, and he will judge, and he does judge, and there's going to be ultimate uh, justice if you're not seeing it totally now. Well, here's what it was. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. And he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He also did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's fascinating. You could actually go to 2 Chronicles 36, 11 through 20, and you could see the evil he did in the sight of the Lord. This is fascinating for me. Not only can you go to 2 Chronicles 36, 11 through 20 to see what Zedekiah did evil in the sight of the Lord, but you also could go and look at his brother Jehoiakim because he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that Jehoiakim did. Isn't that, isn't that fascinating? Well, it is for me. And you could go and... Uh, read about Jehoiakim in several different places. Uh, and yeah, he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, God said to press into the chastisement of Nebuchadnezzar. He was part of the sins of Manasseh. Raise your hand if you remember what the sins of Manasseh was. Well, you should because it was a biggie. Manasseh engaged in child uh, sacrifice. And so, uh, so was this guy. Well, he didn't listen to the Lord in Jeremiah 22. He persecuted those who spoke truth. And this is the guy who threw the scroll of Jeremiah. He cut it and threw it into the fire. He didn't have any regard for God's word. That's this guy. And so he did evil in the sight of the Lord, Zedekiah did. But he also did the things that his relative did there. For because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem, verse 3, till he finally cast them out from his presence. Now circle that. See, see, that's the whole thing of the whole Bible right there, is to be in the presence of the Lord. That, that's what it is. 
I mean, if you go to Psalm 27 and read that psalm, it's about the the presence of the Lord. That's what we want. We don't want false religion or uh, jump through the hoops, stale, check it off, uh, uh, generic, uh, external religion. We, We want the presence of the Lord walking and talking in the garden at the beginning. And at the end, he's going to come and live with us in our presence. There's going to be no need for a son because he's with us. It's the presence of the Lord. What would the people do? They wouldn't move during the day or at night or any time because unless they saw the presence, the cloud and the fire. And there were the, what, what was in the temple or the tabernacle? It was the presence, the kabod, the heaviness, the weight, the Lord. And that was it. And when the glory, the Kabbad departed from the temple, ah, that was devastating because it's all about the presence of the Lord. See, the Lord is our portion in his presence is where we want to be. Perfect love in his presence. It casts out all fear. Being in the presence of the Lord, that's the safest and the healthiest and the greatest place to be is in the presence of the Lord. And we can come to the presence of the Lord by the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't have to traipse down to a temple or a synagogue or any place. You don't even have to, you know, you don't have to come here. You could be in your home because of the blood of Jesus. You're in the presence of the Lord. It's so beautiful. But here, see, Sin takes us out of that in in a way, you know, and David talked about that. Uh, Cast me not away from your presence, he said, remember? Renew a right spirit within me. That's that's that. It's all about the presence. So here this guy is, and he's done evil, and he finally cast them out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon, Remember, this is sort of, you got to really think through this stuff. Jeremiah asked Zedekiah not to rebel against Babylon because Babylon was the instrument God was using to chastise the people of God. But Zedekiah rebelled, and that's sort of why he was called up there, and that's how Sarai got up there. Now, it came to pass in the ninth year of the reign, in the tenth month, that Nebuchadnezzar, And all his army came against Jerusalem and camped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. And the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Watch this. By the fourth month, on the ninth day of the month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Very historical. Very clinical. No food. Boy, you go to Lamentations, chapter 4, etc. You're going to see this was a terrible, brutal time. I mean, a brutal time, and we'll see that when we get there. Then the city wall was broken through. What, what courageous men of war. And the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war, how about that, guys, fled and went out of the city at night by the way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were near the city all around, and they went by way of the plain. But the Chaldeans, the army of the Chaldeans, pursued the king, and they overtook Zedekiah, overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. You're going to go. If you go with us this, this march, we're going to go right up through Jericho and go right up into the city, and you're going to see how far that was. They went a long way before they were caught, and all his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah in the land of Hamath, and he pronounced judgment on him. Then the king of Babylon killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And all, he killed all the princes of Judah in Riblah, and he also put out the eyes of Zedekiah. And the king of Babylon bound him in bronze fetters, took him to Babylon, and put him in prison until the day of the death. And this fulfills this really strange prophecy in Ezekiel 12, 13, where it says he's going to be taken to Babylon but never see it. And you're like reading that going, huh? And well, here's why. And then he was taken to prison, and Josephus, in an extra-biblical account, says Nebuchadnezzar kept Zedekiah in prison till he died, and then he had a magnificent burial for him. He had a magnificent burial for him, and you could read about why or maybe why that took place in Jeremiah 31, verse 5. Well, verse 12, now in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of Nebi, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, who served the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. Watch this. See, 
This is why it must be a historical account, and it's not poetic in any way. Watch this. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. I mean, he just tells the account. I mean, this is catastrophic for these people, right? Here it is. There it's where the presence of the Lord was. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls of Jerusalem. Then Nebuchadnezzar, then the captain, carried away captive some of the poor people, the rest of the people who remained in the city, the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon, and the rest of the craftsmen. But Nebuchadnezzar, then the captain of the guard, left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. Okay, now don't tune out. I know it's 810, and you're, getting, you're going, okay, it's almost over. And we're going on to Lamentations and that good. And we're about ready to read about things in the temple. Well, see, I think this part has great application for us. And here it comes. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord. And the carts. Okay? And, and, uh, uh, and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord. The Chaldeans broke in pieces. And they carried all their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the bowls, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered, the basins, the firepans, the bowls, the pots, the lampstands, the spoons, and the cups. Whatever was solid gold and whatever was solid silver, the captain, the guard, took away. And then the two pillars, one sea, the 12 bronze bowls which were under it, and the carts which King Solomon had made for the house of the Lord. The browns of all these articles was beyond measure. Now concerning the pillars, the height of one pillar was 18 cubits, a measuring line of 12 cubits, and measures its circumstances, and its thickness was four fingers, it was hollow. A capital of bronze was on it, and the height of one capital was five cubits, with a network of and pomegranates all around the capital, all of bronze. The second pillar with pomegranates was the same, and there were 96 pomegranates on the side, all the pomegranates all around on the network. Isn't that funny? It says network, but anyway, we're 100. And you go, well, come on, what's that all about? Well, here I want you to know something. I actually like, and I think you do too, going through in the Old Testament what was put in the tabernacle. Because you see, every article, every tarp, every skin, every painting, every use of gold or silver or lampstands or incense or bread or whatever was used... All the various things, every single one of them, draw people into the reality of who God is. Pointing to Jesus, pointing to uh, uh, his, his creation, pointing to what he's like. See, all of these things draw people into the reality of God and make people to think of God and his character and his plan. You all following with me? But what can happen is people can start to worship the things and the reality of Christ. I mean, you can't see it up here, but we have a dove up here, okay? And I've had people get mad because there's not a cross up there. Wait a minute. It ain't about the wood or the or the cutout steel back there. That's the uh, the dove. It's about the reality of the living Jesus Christ. And sometimes we can get into that mode where if you take away all the things, we're just left with the Lord, and that's good for us. You get it. But what's beautiful here is God returns them when they get back to their place, Jerusalem. So what I think he's saying is it's not necessarily bad if it aids you in worshiping the true living God, me, God, not me, but God, he says. But once it becomes an obstacle, you got to be in that seat and look at that thing and rub that thing and do this thing, and then that can be worship. Mmm, boy, oh boy, oh boy. You, you even know this, right? Because remember the story of the fiery serpents. 
And you know that took place in Numbers 21. You know all about that when God sent fiery serpents. I'm not laughing about that, but I'm laughing. Why? Because they were complaining because God fed them every day. And they complained about it. So God set fiery serpents, and then you know the thing. They, the fiery serpent was up there, and you looked at it, you'd be saved. Well, in 2 Kings 15, chapter 4, you can read it, but it said that they got real weird about that and started worshiping that thing instead of the reality of God. So it's just something to be careful about. And I know we gaze out or, or, you know, check out. Don't focus in when we get to this part because you're like, could you stop reading that? I mean, that's too much stuff. I got to get through the one-year Bible, man. But I think it has a lesson. Well, 24, the captain of the guards took Sarai, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, seven men and the king's close associates who were found around the city, the principal scribe of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city, and Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, or excuse me, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king at Riblah, and the king struck them and put them to death in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. See, that's really sad and awful and disastrous because who gave them the land? God did. And they were carried away captive. And these are the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive, 3,023 Jews. And I'll let you read uh, all of that. All the persons were 4,000 600. Now, you know this, right? Uh, in 2 Kings 24, the numbers don't match up. So people say, oh, there's a mistake in the Bible. Well, most people believe one of these was counting just the male heads, but not the female and the children. And that's the explanation for that. Now, you go on to verse 34. Here's how I got mixed up. See, I got my two stories mixed up. Sorry about that. <laughs> Now, it came to pass, verse 31, in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin. There we go. Not the last king. <laughs> Zedekiah was the last king before um, uh, Judah was uh, taken uh, exile. Uh, the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 25th day of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, the first year of the reign, lifted up the head of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given them, uh, 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 given him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day until the day of his death, all the days of his life. Really strange story. Why in the world is it in there? Well, I think why it's in there is, first of all, this isn't the king. This is a, a prior two or three kings above him. Uh, that preceded him. This one only lasted three months. Uh, and he was really just sort of a dreadful king and a no-nothing king. And he just didn't make any sort of impact, etc. And here, right at the end, Baruch makes it a point by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell you that there is favor and grace for the people of God, even if they're a nobody. <laughs> and that's how he ends the prophecies of Jeremiah. That's how he ends the prophecy of Jeremiah. I'm going to tell you two other things. Remember Baruch and Sarai, both brothers? Baruch, they've actually found his thumbprint, real thing, in archaeology. They found one of his letters with the thumbprint still intact. Most people say he's the only person in the Bible that you can get his fingerprints from. Sarai, too, in the places where he ministered, on one of the gates, there was a reference to him as being one of the people, or it was a, it was a gate up in Babylon, one of the people who brought a, a message to the people of Babylon. Isn't that fascinating? So the Bible keeps telling itself true. 
What does this say? Why would he recount it four times, the fall of Jerusalem? Well, I think one we've counted. God must contend with sin and rebellion. But the good news for us, Romans 3, is he's both, I'll never forget this one, he's both the just and the justifier. That's so fantastic and so spectacular. He is just. He must contend with sin. And you go, wow, when you hear that, it's sort of like, whoa, it's shocking. Yes, he must contend with sin. But he is not only the just who must contend with sin, he's also the one who does the justifying by sending his son, the righteous one, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. So he must contend with sin. That's one thing this says. Another thing this says, I think, is when God says something, and this sounds so simple, it sounds so much like pastor speak, but it really isn't. When God says something, it is true and it is going to come to pass no matter what anybody says or no matter what the odds look like. The odds could be less than the Steelers on the last weekend to get into the playoffs. <clears throat> and the odds could be overwhelming. You're sitting there and you're going, Medes against Babylonians? Who in the world are the Medes? We don't even know who the Medes. This must not be true. And in fact, how many false prophets were saying in Jeremiah's time, this isn't true. He's lying. But God's word just was it. It's really what the only thing we can pin our hopes to is the word of God. What does God say? You know, you say, well, my goodness. Okay, you're just saying that because you're a pastor. Well, I mean, you're sitting here. You're living in a time when nobody knows what's going on. Everybody's confused except the Christians and even some of the Christians. And everybody's confused and you're like, okay, well, if I put a mask on or if I, and nothing wrong, I'm not criticizing anybody putting a mask on. Or if you don't put a mask on, or if you, or if you quarantine 10 days, I mean 14 days, or beginning, I mean 10 days, I mean 5 days. And I'm not criticizing all those sorts of things. I mean, maybe that has, but nobody knows what's going on. And if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're like, well, my gosh, this is worse than it was a year ago. And we could even fall in that trap and say things like that. And yet, when is there a greater time in all of history to share God's word, his love, his light, his forgiveness, his gospel. It's now, folks. There's not a better time. People are confused, and there's one answer, and it's Jesus. And we know it. So as we go out today or tonight, let's do this. Let's Give people the answer. I'll even pray. Let's pray together that there'd be somebody who's confused this week that we could talk with. i just give you a little hint, man. Don't go out on social media and say what's going on, and you know what's going on. Here's what's going on. God is on the throne. And he's coming back in judgment. <laughs> and he could come at any time and take us out of here. But before he does, let's just lay it all out in sharing and loving and praying and seeking and asking the Lord to save many before that happens. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we come here tonight, and we're thankful that we have a place to visit, or, or excuse me, a place to worship you. But, Lord, we can worship you in the car or at home, but it's so good to get together with the brothers and sisters and to just talk about and look at your word and then to praise you, Lord. Oh, that's so wonderful. And, Lord, we're going to have the privilege of praying for a few brothers and sisters after the service here tonight. All these things, we get a fellowship. Oh, it's so beautiful. Lord, thank you for the privilege of being in your family by the blood of your son. 
And Lord, as we move out to here tonight, I pray for each one of these folks, and myself too, that this evening, tomorrow, tonight, <laughs> the whole week, continuing on until you come back, Lord, that you'd give us many opportunities to share your love and your light, the gospel, and that you would prepare the hearts of the people we're talking with, and many would come to know you in a real and saving way. We're so thankful, Lord, that you are coming back, but you are also are long-suffering. So we pray that many would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.